0: Well, here on Sunday mornings, we've been going through Matthew's gospel, and recently we've been in the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, and even last week, we learned how Christ taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our desire is to see God's kingdom and God's will done here on earth as it is in heaven, but verse like that can pique our interest, namely about heaven. You know, what are things like in heaven? In heaven, God's will is always done. What, what does that look like? Scripture reveals only a little about heaven, from being in the presence of the Lord to eventually inheriting a new heavens and a new earth. We know that the term heaven is used to refer to the spiritual domain of God, the place of his special presence. And it is a real place, again, whatever place means in the spiritual realm. But we also know that place is our home, being in Christ. We are strangers and exiles now here on earth, this This world is no longer our home. We long to be where the Lord is. And one day we will be. But again, that leads us to wonder, like, what what will that be like? We don't know everything. We don't know much. Only a little has been revealed. One thing we do know, there will be worship. There will be singing. And and God must love music because that will be there too. Now, the old medieval caricature is wrong, namely that in heaven we're just sitting on clouds playing the harp all day. But that said, we gain several windows into heaven in the scriptures, and the praise of God seems to be a pretty big deal. That only makes sense, though, God is worthy of eternal worship, and that's when he's going to get. Now, as we peer into the scriptures, we catch that glimpse of the world to come. It's meant to create in us a longing for that time. But it's also meant to transform how we live here and now as we still live in the gap between the old and the new. Specifically, you know, as we see how they worship in heaven, it should move us to bring heaven to earth. Should we not model our worship after what they sing in heaven? Just as we seek God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, shouldn't we seek God's name to be praised on earth as it is in heaven? Really, when you think about it, singing, this this act of corporate praise and singing, might be one of the greatest expressions of the church's unity in in Christ. The church, the bride of Christ, all these different people. But when they come together and they sing together, you have all these different voices now as one, lifted up in harmony to God. What a picture of our oneness in Christ. And when our singing reflects what they sing in heaven, it's like we're joining that heavenly chorus, where all creation sings praise to God's name. So maybe we should do that. Maybe our praise and worship of God on earth should reflect the praise and worship of God in heaven. And that's something I want us to consider this morning for a special resurrection Sunday message. You may wonder what, what that has to do with Easter. And the answer is a lot. Let I me mean, just think what is what is the main object of heaven's worship? When the saints and angels sing, what are they often singing about? The answer more often than not is is Christ, the risen lamb, the crucified and resurrected savior. The death and resurrection of Jesus should occupy a lion's share of our singing. And so indeed for a special Easter message, I want to transport you to heaven to show you what they sing in heaven that you too might add your voice to the praise of the risen lamb now. And so if we're going to do something like this, you know, where in the scriptures should we turn? Well, I think it's obvious. You've got to go to the most musical book of the New Testament. And you all know what that is, right? It's the book of Revelation. I said New Testament, not Old Testament. Psalms wins Old Testament. But New Testament Revelation, believe it or not. But it's true. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. If you have a pew Bible, you can open it. Just go to the end. Just go to the last book. Now, most associate the book of Revelation with end times, and that is the case. But it also has a lot to say about the praise of God. Quite often in the form of song. There are around 15 hymns or songs captured in the book of Revelation. We don't get the audio for these songs. We don't get the the song sheets. But we get the lyrics and that's enough. Now of these 15 or so songs in Revelation, some are outright labeled as songs. Like Chapter 5 verse 8, you see these elders, they are holding harps. Chapter 5 verse 9 says they sing a new song. Again, chapter 14 verse 3, they sing a new song. Chapter 15 verse 3, they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So, a lot of singing in Revelation. Now, many of these other songs, they're not labeled as songs, and some they're not even said to be sung, but I think there's still a good reason to believe John heard these as songs. Apostle John is writing Revelation based on visions the Lord gave to him. He's relating what he saw, what he heard, even what he smelled. All just with words. That is very challenging to put just to words. But we want to know what did John hear? Each of these 15 songs is introduced by the Greek word legantes. It just means saying, but it's often used to introduce a direct quote. And each time it seems John is just directly quoting what the saints and angels were saying in heaven. But again, many of these sayings, they come in a context of singing. Some are outright called songs. There's a fine line between singing something and saying something anyway, right? Uh, We don't have the audio file for Revelation. Did John hear declarations? Did he hear melodic chanting? Did he hear rhythmic singing? We don't really know, but there's enough clues in the context and even direct statements to lead us to believe that that most of, if not all of these 15 sayings, were in the form of song. Now, no matter the precise number, musical worship clearly plays a larger role in the book of Revelation than any other New Testament book. And whatever the heavenly host said or sang in their worship of God, either way, we want to model our worship after that, right? Now, our time is limited. We can't cover every single song in Revelation, but it will suffice for us to look at a notable collection, namely the first five songs found in Revelation 4 and 5. This opening salvo of heavenly praise, it's, it's already enough for us to impact our worship now, even how we live now. We don't have to wait till we get there. Now, before we dive in, give you a quick background of the book of Revelation, since we're just jumping right into this book. It's one of the few books of the New Testament that comes with its own title. Revelation 1.1, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word means unveiling. This is the revealing of the risen, exalted, glorified Christ, who is to come. The apostle John, now he's an old man. He's the last living apostle. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. But the exalted Christ visits him. And in chapter one, tells him to write what he sees. That really starts off with a message for the seven churches of Asia Minor. They were the primary audience of this revelation. And so in chapters 2 and 3, it contains a series of messages from the risen Lord to the seven churches. Trouble was brewing on the horizon for the early church. They were facing false teaching internally, persecution externally. And John writes under the reign of the emperor Domitian, at the end of the first century, and indeed, in just a short while, the emperor would unleash tribulation, little t, on the churches. But this revelation was meant to be immensely encouraging for the church. I think a lot of Christians stay away from revelation. It's too confusing. I don't understand it, but it's meant to be one of the most encouraging books of the Bible. Why? Why? I mean, big picture, as the churches read the these series of visions by the end, like, what's the takeaway? What, what do they learn? They learn that, that God is completely sovereign overall, from the nations to demons, from Satan to Antichrist. That no enemy possesses any real threat to God's kingdom. I mean, God's on the throne. His reign is soon coming to earth. Evil will be eradicated. Satan and sinners will be judged. God's people will be vindicated. This will all take place through the, the risen, exalted Christ who is to come. The world may persecute believers and cause them much trouble. Christ told us to expect that. He said in the world, we will have tribulation, little t. But we learn here, even when the whole world the whole world unites in rebellion against God, led by an unholy trinity, even that rebellion stands no chance against the risen lamb. In this age, the church may and will face a measure of suffering, persecution, rejection, ridicule, mockery, for some, even death. But believers overwhelmingly conquer in Christ and will rise again. This kingdom awaits. That message is meant to give courage to all believers to persevere through difficult times. That is a message those first churches needed to hear. But guess what? That's a, church, that's a message every church in every age needs to hear because the kingdom of darkness remains. And Christ's return is our ultimate hope. As that brings us now to Revelation chapter 4. This is where John receives visions now about things to come. Specifically, this details a time of great tribulation on the earth, culminating in the return of the exalted Christ to reign and rule. That return takes place in chapter 19. In between, from chapter 4 through chapter 19, scattered throughout are these songs or declarations of praise for what God is doing. But like I said, though, for our time this morning, we're just going to set our sights on the beginning of this future time. And the window into heavenly praise it affords us. You know, this is still a tall order. It's two whole chapters. But I think it will be rewarding. As a first order of business. I just want to take us on, on a survey of the first five songs. Found in Revelation 4 and 5. Just read and hear what they sing in heaven. Then we will we'll need to circle back at the end. And, and draw out some, some critical implications. Lessons from, from all that we learned. Because this is meant to affect us now. So, I think that's enough. Let's, let's get started. Revelation chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. Revelation 4.1, a new scene. John writes, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. It was back in chapter 1, John heard the voice of a sound of a trumpet, and it belonged to Christ Jesus who was revealing himself to him. And it's the same voice. Christ is now calling him up to see a new series of of heavenly visions, of things to come. So verse two, John says, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow all around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. John sees first this throne and the throne becomes the focal point for this vision, this throne. And this throne represents authority, God's authority, God's power, because this is God's throne. It is God who sits on this throne. God is spirit, but John is is being given some symbolic depiction of the majesty of God on his throne. Next, John is introduced to those around the throne verse four. It says, "Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns were on their head. So there's one central throne, God's throne. Around it, 24 others. These thrones are in no competition with, with God's throne. They are subordinate. But they are occupied by, by men of prominence in history. We have these 24 elders. Their identity is not stated, but it strongly stands to reason they, they represent the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles. All of whose names appear in the new Jerusalem at the end of the book. They're there to represent the elect of God. Next, verse 5. It says, Out from the throne. Come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature, like a calf, and the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Uh, It's just as clear, words fail. Words can't do full justice to what John saw. But they're sufficient to communicate God's message. And we're not here to unpack every detail of this passage. I want to focus on the message. Of note are these four creatures. the directly around God's throne. And their depiction reveals them to be cherubim. They're the highest order of angels God created. Throughout the Old Testament, they always show up in connection to God's glory and God's presence. From the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant to Isaiah's own throne room vision in Isaiah 6. Whenever you see these beings, you know you are very close to the presence of God. And here they function as his throne room attendants, guarding his praise, declaring his praise, and singing his praise. This brings us to the first song. So what are they singing? Or at least saying, what do they declare? Verse 8. It says, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Whether this is stated or chanted or sung, it's clearly an expression of worship. God is perfectly holy. He's triunely holy. So they have to say, holy, holy, holy. These four creatures creatures—they never get tired of declaring God's holiness. As we saw them way back in Isaiah 6, they were saying the same thing. Holy, holy, holy. They follow that up with the declaration of God's eternality. Just think, what, other, what else but his eternality sets God apart from all creation? Everything had a beginning except God, the uncreated creator. That is part of what makes him so worthy of all praise. Continues verse 9. It says, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, To him who lives forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God. To receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. This is song number two. The song of the, the 24 elders. Their declaration. They join the four creatures. In praising God. They face plant. They were sitting on their thrones. Now they're face planting before the throne. And they take their crowns. They throw them before the throne. Showing that whatever honor they have. It's clearly derived. It is clearly just given to them. It doesn't belong to them. They give it back to God. They worship the God who lives forever. Again, highlighting his eternality. Only, only he is worthy of actual worship. And then it says, They declare, Legantes, likely by singing. They say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. And really, that, that phrase, worthy, that it's the essence of worship. Worship, even the word itself, is all about declaring the worth of something. You naturally worship, that which you find most worthy. These 24 elders though, they know that only God has supreme worth. Therefore only God is worthy of supreme worship. And it has to be expressed. It's not enough to know that. It has to come out of you somehow. Like Psalm 18.3 says, our God is worthy to be praised. So they bow down and they sing. That's Revelation chapter four. Already, this is staggering. We, we've been transported with John to the throne room of God to behold his glory. We just, we just get a little verbal depiction that obviously pales into comparison to what John actually beheld. The sounds of the thunder, that the glory that the people around the throne or the beings. Even still, though, just this little depiction should inspire a reverence and a worship in us already. I mean, this is our God. He's the one true God. He's the only God. He's the only one worthy of your worship. All of it. Do you give all of it to him? I think already we should be compelled to join in the first two songs. Which are all about expressing God's matchless worth. But we're not done because we turn the page to chapter 5. We find there's there's actually some conflict in heaven. There's, There's a problem. I mean, what could go wrong in a situation like this? Well, we continue now right into chapter five, verse one. The same vision continues. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break the seals. Now, chapter five, a new focal point emerges. It is this book. Really, it's a scroll. It's a scroll in the right hand of God. This depicts an ancient scroll on which deeds or contracts would be written. Many have interpreted this scroll to refer to really the the title deed of the earth. Satan has usurped the exercise of God's rule on the earth. But that time is about to come to an end. Now, it's, it's time for God's wrath. To be poured out on all rebellion and for his kingdom rule to come. That is, if, if only someone can open the scroll to, to fulfill the contract. This scroll is rolled up. It's sealed with seven seals. Ancient scrolls would often be sealed with multiple wax seals. Just to prevent any unauthorized access to the agreement. But here, these are no ordinary seals. Nobody can open them. Only one found worthy can open them, can break the seals. So we wonder, you know, who is worthy to be God's instrument of judgment on the world? Who's going to be the one to crush Satan and take back the earth? And the answer at first is no one. There's no one found. Verse 3. It says no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then John says, verse four, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. But you notice that word worthy again. The elders were just declaring God is worthy. The question is, who else is worthy enough to take this scroll out of the right hand of God? And no one is found. Just think about that. Think what that means. That means these 24 elders, they're not worthy. I mean, they got white robes. They have golden crowns. They have thrones. It's not enough to make them worthy. Think about these four living creatures. These four majestic, angelic beings. They're sinless. They were created perfect. They're never fallen. They're uncorrupted. They're holy but they're not worthy. That still does not make them worthy to take this scroll. It's not enough. At the end of the day, these these beings, they're all creatures. They were created. Only God is eternal. Only God is worthy. There's no one like him, except for one. This this conflict has a resolution, as I I assume you already know. But in case you don't, verse 5. It says, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse six, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. It's good news. There's there's no need to worry. There's no need to weep because there is one found worthy to take that book and open it. And who does John see? It is obviously Christ. Jesus, the Lord, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root descendant of David. It was said long ago, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And that one from David, a son of David, would arise to usher in God's everlasting kingdom. That is Jesus. But you'll notice you know, worthy, worthiness. It's not just his lineage that makes him worthy. Rather, verse 5 says, he has overcome so as to take the book and break its seals. What makes Jesus worthy is not just his person, although that would have been enough, but also here highlighted is his work. What work is that? What did he overcome? Well, the work is the cross and he overcame death, his resurrection. That's why verse six symbolically pictures Jesus as a lamb. This lamb is standing in between the throne and the twenty four elders as that mediator between God and man. And it says he stands as if slain. Sphadzot, it's a word used of slitting the throat of a sacrificial lamb, like at Passover, which is what they would do. And John he sees this lamb and it has the marks, it has the scars, as if it were sacrificed, but it's not dead. It's standing, it's alive, as if it's been resurrected. He has seven horns, a consistent symbol for omnipotence. He has seven eyes, a consistent symbol for omniscience. He has seven spirits, a consistent symbol for the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. There's no one like this figure. John is seeing the risen, exalted Savior Christ. One who's made worthy as the Lamb of God. Who came to take away the sins of the world. The main point, though, is what? That Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. No one else in heaven or earth was worthy enough to, to take the earth back for God, to overcome, but Jesus. And so when Jesus shows up in this vision, just just his appearance, and when he takes that scroll, it kind of sounds like a, another good occasion to, to worship. And indeed, verse 8, it says, When he had taken the book, The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayer roll. These throne attendants, every time a believer sincerely prayed your kingdom come, those prayers were actions and take back the earth. They, They sing a new song work. They say for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Beyond redeeming us, the Lord makes us into a kingdom and priests. This king-priest theme runs throughout Revelation. Jesus is the ultimate king and priest. He's a ruler who intercedes for his people, even lays down his life for his people. And in turn, he makes us to be types of kings and priests to rule and worship under him. But truly, all that all that Jesus has accomplished makes Him worthy, so worthy that, that this little praise session can't end here. Now that the voices of the four creatures and the twenty-four elders—it's not enough. We, we need some more voices. It's so verse eleven. It says, "Then I looked." I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is song number four. And here the, the angelic host adds their voices to the chorus It says, literally, John sees 10,000 times 10,000 angels. That is not meant to mean there's 100 million. It's just a word they use, a phrase to describe something you can't count. Probably much more than 100 million. Just think of the vastness of of all of God's creation that we can't even see. But here, all the angelic hosts join into this song. We get the privilege, privilege of going to Shepherd's Conference every March. We get to hear... The sound of 3,000 men sing hymns. It's a loud, booming, impressive sound. But just imagine the sound of millions, if not billions, of angels singing as one. I can't. I can't. But they too sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Just keeping that theme of seven or completeness going, they sound off seven qualities that belong to the lamb. He is so worthy that to him belong all power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing, which indicates he possesses all authority, riches, intellect, empowerment, esteem, splendor, and praise. Just think though, glory, honor, power, glory, honor, power. that, That was just ascribed to God on the throne a minute ago by the 24 elders. Now, The same thing and more is being ascribed to the lamb. But still not quite done. Even all this, it's still not enough exaltation to put on display just how worthy the lamb is. We need more to show. No, he really is worthy. So we finish song number five. What else does John see? Verse 13. It says, And every created thing which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all the things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So now the picture is complete. John, John's been witnessing this ever widening circle of God's created beings praising him. You have the throne and the Lamb now together at the center, the two objects of worship. Around them are the four living creatures. Around them are the 24 elders. Around them are the countless angels. And now, the final circle, he sees every other created being. He just heaps up language to, to show you. He really means everything that's been created, everything. In in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, on the sea. just, Just means everything. Romans 8 says, all creation groans for its redemption. When this day comes, all creation finally can sing of its redemption. And so we get this final grand chorus where every being sings praises to whom? To God and to the Lamb. Both Together as one. They ascribe all blessing, honor, glory, and dominion to them both forever. And this is ultimate worship. No, no worship experience we've ever seen comes close to this. Right? No stadium experience. No loud music. No booming speakers. No light show. No special effects. Nothing man can do comes even close to the, the true worship in heaven. But God is worthy of it all. Forever. And so is the lamb. This concludes Revelation chapter 5. In the ensuing chapters, Christ, he took that scroll and he starts popping the seals. He starts breaking the seals. And every time he does, wrath falls on the earth. The wicked and the rebellious, both human and demonic, suffer the wrath of God. They do not repent. And so this culminates finally with the return of Christ himself, who puts an end to all other rule, all counterfeit kingdoms. The wicked are judged, Satan is bound, and Christ comes to rule and reign with his people in the kingdom. And as the remainder of these events unfold, in Revelation 6 through 19, as I mentioned, there are many more songs. As John starts to witness the future tribulation that takes place on earth, he occasionally gets these windows into what's going on in heaven at the same time. And every time, though, it's it's kind of the same thing. Just praise and worship. They continue to praise God on the throne and the lamb, both for their salvation and for their judgments, because they are just and true. And that praise will endure forever. Now, we, however, are very much bound by time. And so we we don't have the time to look at all of the remaining songs in Revelation. But what we've witnessed already, I think, is enough, like I said, to deeply impact how we worship here and now, how we live. So with the time we have remaining, I want to just turn a corner. And and from these five songs, you know, why not derive five, five lessons, five implications for us to learn and apply in the church today? We read through it. That's good. We need to reflect on it, what they sing in heaven. Five lessons for us to learn and apply in the church today. And think on these, it's a lot, but this, this passage is a lot. First, should be clear, only God is worthy of worship. Right? Only God is worthy of worship. At the heart of all sin is idolatry. Only God is worth your total love and obedience and devotion. But from the very beginning, from the fall, we, we've all bought this lie that you know, there's something else more worthy. And what's the answer? It's it's us it's self. Our will be done. And all sin is rebellion against the worth of God. That rebellion is often manifested in like literal idolatry. Like Romans 1:21 says, man did not honor God or give thanks, but exchanged the glory of God for a lie for for the form of some creature or man. Man started worshiping the sun, moon, stars, animals, himself, as if, as if these things were worthy. But when you just see that the one true God seated on his throne, when you behold the majesty of his name and his nature in the scriptures, you see like that, why all, all manner of idolatry is the gravest sin there is. Nothing compares to him. No, no created thing has the worth of God, not even yourself. So when you give what belongs to God alone to some created thing that is unworthy, I mean, it's, it's the greatest offense to God. It's no wonder this, this inspires and calls on his righteous indignation. That's not right. Now, what, what in your life do you find most worthy? we can say, what do you worship? How would you answer these questions? What do you adore? Sacrifice for? Submit to? Seek after? Hope in? Serve? Give to? Talk about? Look to for meaning? Spend a great deal of time and money on? If your number one answer to that list is anything but God, you've identified an idol. This does not mean we can't enjoy all the good gifts God has given to us on earth. But it does mean we can't take those gifts and start worshiping them as if they are holy or worthy, I should say. You know, don't confuse the gifts with the gift giver. He is the only one who is worthy. And so like the apostle John says in 1 John 5.21, he says, be on guard against idols in all their forms. And as John recorded in John 4.23, he said, the father is searching for true worshipers those who will recognize and confess and worship him alone as supreme and i pray this is you that that you seek to tear down any idol that infiltrates your heart and you enthrone god alone for number one only god is worthy of worship but number two number two but so is jesus for jesus is god So is Jesus, for Jesus is God. I have designed these five lessons to kind of daisy chain together into one long sentence or one long lesson. So point number two, really, it reads, but so is Jesus, for Jesus is God. Only God is worthy of worship, but so is Jesus, for Jesus is God. And that's the only conclusion you can reach after studying Revelation 4 and 5. Just consider what we read. You had God on the throne. And the heavenly host comes around him. They bow down before him. They're worshiping him, declaring him worthy of all glory and honor and praise. That makes sense. Like we get that. We expect that. That's right. He is worthy. No problem. The very next moment, Christ shows up right next to the father. And now we see not only the heavenly host, but every single angel and every single being. Now they bow down. They give the exact same praise to him. They say all glory and honor and power now belong to him. Like God, the father's sitting right there. If Jesus is not God, the son, this is cosmic idolatry. All throughout the old Testament, God says something like this. Isaiah 42 verse eight He says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. He won't do it. He can't do it. He'd be committing idolatry himself. He has to worship himself. What else is more worthy than God himself? That's why he's jealous for his own name. He is most worthy. He has to guard his glory. Compared to him, nothing is worthy. But, but God does not protest when Jesus takes God's glory for himself. He endorses it. He gives him the scroll in his right hand. I mean, really, when you think about it, is there any greater proof in Scripture that Jesus is God? There's only one God, but Scripture reveals he exists in three distinct persons, each person being fully God. Jesus is God the Son, fully God, who became fully man to save us. But again, the point we're learning is that he is worthy. Jesus, too, is worthy of a worship In such a way that does not contradict our exclusive worship of the one true God. And hence, they sang that final song to God on the throne and to the Lamb. In the same breath together as one. Christ is worthy because he too is uncreated. He's co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. Hebrews 7.3, he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, word was with God, the word was God. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus himself was a created being. Now, albeit he's the first being, he's the greatest being, but a created being nonetheless. But if that were true, there is just no way he could be counted worthy of the same worship as God that cannot be. There's, there's just no comparison between any created being, any created being, no matter how high God made it, and himself, the uncreated eternal God. But the fact that Jesus is worshiped in the same way, the same place, the same time as God, the father on the throne, what does that tell you? But let's also remember that what's highlighted here Is that Jesus is worthy also because of his work as that risen lamb. You know, Jesus, he's only called lion once in the book of Revelation. He's called lamb 29 times. That's because his real power and supremacy are shown in his work as the crucified and risen lamb. The lamb who was slain, but he's still standing. Those who have been saved know the power of his blood. It was his blood... Revelation 1.5, that released us from our sins. It was the blood of the lamb, Revelation 12.11, that enables us to overcome the devil. The cross was the key to Christ's victory. His enemies thought they were handing him a defeat when he was crucified, but actually they were handing him the victory. Because in that death, he paid for all of our sins, conquered the power of the devil, overcame death itself. This is why Philippians 2.9 says, 11 says, speaking of his obedience to the point of death, it says, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look, we read it, read it again. One day, all creation is going to confess Jesus is Lord. Believers, unbelievers, angels, demons. They're all going to confess either by choice or by force. And far better to confess him now, willingly, seeing who he is, believing in him. Far better to count him worthy of your praise now. I think that leads us to our third lesson. Which reads, so sing praises to the risen Lamb, only God is worthy of worship, but so is Jesus, because Jesus is God. so sing praises to the risen Lamb. And this, this has to be for us a, a huge takeaway from what they sing in heaven. We, we have to join them in worship and in song, and this should inform what we sing and how we sing. Like we asked before I me, mean, don't you think the musical worship of the church on earth? should reflect the musical worship in heaven. I'd say yes. So, so what do we learn about praise and worship itself? I think a lot of Christians get caught up in, in the wrong aspects of worship. They worry about the outward forms. You know, hands up, hands down. Eyes open, eyes closed. Standing, sitting. They worry about the style of worship. You know, piano or guitar. Drums, no drums. Contemporary, Classical. Do you realize none of that is ever addressed in the New Testament? The New Testament is absolutely silent about the musical worship of the local church. Not a single instrument is mentioned. No styles are discussed. No forms are prescribed. The only instrument mentioned is the human voice. That's what God wants. He wants you to believe in your heart that he and his son are worthy. And for that just to come out of your mouth. It's got to be expressed. If it's really in your heart, it has to be expressed. He wants it from your voice. With the forms and the styles, the church has liberty. But the heart and the voice are essential. And today in America, that's often missed. Worship has become performance-driven, not praise-driven. And I think a lot of churches have become overly concerned about the wrong audience. Your know, praise sets are carefully crafted to appeal to the audience of man. As if the congregation is an audience watching a show. But you see that that's the wrong audience. Anytime we sing, it always only ever has one audience. God. God's the audience. The congregation, you're the performers. People on the stage, they're merely facilitators. Just helping us sing together. But th- this is not a show. You never miss that we're singing to an audience of one that should inform how we sing. That should inform what we sing when the new Testament does address praise. The one thing that is crystal clear is that the content must be biblical, biblical truth. Singing really is just another vehicle for declaring God's truth. And so what do they sing in heaven? Listen, of the five songs we surveyed this morning, How many times did you hear the words, I, me, or my? How many times did the singers reference self? You go back and check, not once. They exclusively focused their content on God. This is not to say it's wrong to reference our experience. You have that in the Psalms. There is appropriate place for that. But the point is the focus of worship, the focus is always on God, never man. The focus of the words, it's always on the objective truth of the gospel. Never our subjective response. And too many praise songs today are shallow husks of truth. They're designed to draw out an emotional experience, but they're devoid of substance. What pleases our audience? God, our only audience. What is pleasing to him? What does he want to hear? We've learned this morning talking about God-centered, Christ-exalting declarations, focusing on his person, his work, his creation, his redemption. And so I think we have to aim to reflect heaven's songs with rich, truthful lyrics sung in whatever style, but sung from hearts that count Jesus as worthy. That leads to true musical worship. Only God is worthy of worship. But so is Jesus, because Jesus is God. So sing praises to the risen lamb. Number four, knowing that God's enemies don't stand a chance. Knowing that God's enemies don't stand a chance. Look, as we've witnessed the majesty of God and of the lamb, who could possibly stand against them? Who can ward off God's hand? Who can prevail against the risen lamb? And precisely because the lamb was slain, but he's still standing, because he rose, which we celebrate today, his victory is guaranteed. The defeat of his enemies, and in fact, it's a done deal. I mean, how, how do you beat someone who holds the keys to death itself? The moment he rose on the third day, his victory was secure forevermore. The book of Revelation ends with all humanity united in their rebellion against God. They're led by the unholy trinity of Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet. But you know, when Jesus returns, it says this, Revelation 19, 5 and 6, or I'm sorry, 15 and 16. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So that with it, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like, who do you think Jesus is? He's loving. Yes. He's savior. Yes. But you know, he's also the judge. You realize that all judgment has been handed to him. And the reason he judges man is because he loves God's glory way more than he loves man. And those who persist in their hatred of God will receive his righteous wrath. And no wonder that Revelation 6:16 6, depicts the wrath of the lamb as just as fearful as the wrath of God. No enemy will prevail, no judgment will remain. You know, for believers, this truth is actually our greatest encouragement and comfort. But for unbelievers, this is their greatest warning, one which which they must heed today. Have you not yet repented of your rebellion against this God and his son? Have you not seen your sin and confessed him as your Lord, your Savior, the only one who's worthy, the only one who can save you? If you have not, you're still under his wrath and his sword may strike at any moment. Judgment is all that awaits those who have exchanged the glory of God for a lie. That once was all of us. For those who heap up sins, Christ will repay all according to their deeds. That is bad news for you and me because we all are great sinners. But you need to hear and heed the eternal gospel which the angels preach In Revelation 14, 17, or 14, 7, where they say, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. You need to be reconciled to your God. There's only one way. It is through the risen lamb, his son, who died on that cross, rose from the dead to pay for our sins, to bring us back to God, to grant us a place in that kingdom, that heaven. And so long as it is called today, he holds out mercy. If you humble yourself, turn to him, turn from your sin and your rebellion, you will be saved. You'll be made new. You'll be granted entrance into his kingdom. You must do that now. Psalm 2 11 and 12 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. But it says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. So lead us to a last point. We'll finish number five. Lastly, and stand firm in the faith. And stand firm in the faith. What we take away from these songs. And for those who have taken refuge in Christ, the risen lamb, just, just continue to do so. The message of Revelation applies to all the churches that our hope, our salvation, our victory are secure in Christ. Jesus promised his disciples here on earth, suffering and persecution, hardship, rejection, for some even death. Like the way they treated the master, they're going to treat us. We bear his name. The darkness hates the light. As the darkness grows, what do you expect is going to happen? Indeed, scripture says in the last days, difficult times will come. The love of men will grow cold. Lawlessness will increase. Believers may suffer. But you need not fear. But just stand firm. Revelation teaches us how to respond to present tribulation. And that is just simply with a patient endurance. Trusting the risen lamb. What will be true for those future martyrs should be true for us now. As it says of them in Revelation twelve eleven. It says, they overcame him, the devil, because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. That means they counted Christ more worthy than their own life. That is the very definition of true faith. However, you might be tested. I pray that that faith is yours that he, you believe he's that worthy. He has your life. And don't bow to this world and its increasing darkness. Don't love this world. Don't fear this world. Fear God, fear this lamb. But also take comfort in him. He, he died for us. He secured us. He's coming back for us. This message and these songs, they're meant to inspire all the confidence and courage we need to just persevere to patiently endure living in dark times. So until the day we get to sing the songs they sing in heaven there, well, we should just sing them now. We should just join and sing them now because they teach us only God is worthy of worship. But so is Jesus, for Jesus is God. So sing praises to the risen lamb, knowing that God's enemies don't stand a chance and stand firm in the faith. And we pray together now. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is enthroned in the heavens and to the Lamb, the risen and exalted Savior, we, we pray this, this morning. To exalt you, we, we first and foremost just have to add our voices to to that heavenly chorus. We don't need to wait to exclaim, Worthy are you. We sing worthy is God, the the creator, the father who made all things, who holds all things together. And we sing worthy is the son, one co-eternal with the father, but who came, took on flesh, was obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross and, and paid for all of our sins by his blood. We're cleansed. We're released from the claim sin has on us by his death. How can we not sing praises to God, to the lamb, and especially that, the lamb is standing. He has risen and proving his victory over all of our enemies. This is all we need. This is all the fuel we need to go by to live in dark times, to endure, but also to praise, to, just, to not just bunker up, but to, to live boldly for you, to tell others about the Savior and to, to sing your praises each and every day. I pray you purify the hearts of your people, the hearts of your church, to behold you, to count you as more worthy. The flesh remains... And tempts us with other things, other other idols of the heart. Help us to persevere by the spirit and, and realize and live more as if only Christ is worthy of us. May we live that way. For any who do not know you, I pray you open their eyes even this morning to, to reveal to them that the risen lamb. He, he really is the risen lamb. He has claim on their life. May they go to him in a humble, repentant faith, knowing he's tender. He will receive them. He's a shepherd of their souls. So may they go to him now and find the joy that we all get to sing about. We pray for your blessing on on your people this morning as we depart. may you be exalted today forevermore. We praise Christ. We praise the risen lamb. He is worthy. It's in his name we pray. Amen.